This morning we are focusing on the 10th commandment. For second week as we're wrapping up our study of the 10. I hope you've learned a lot over the summer as we've engaged with these commandments. They're a summary of the whole of God's law. And I can say personally I've been impressed again with the depth and the breadth and the um, comprehensiveness of these commandments. They speak to all of the issues of life in God's world, how we relate to God, how we relate to our neighbor. As Pastor Steve mentioned last week, we see that the Ten Commandments are, they're comprehensive, they're concise, and they're this connected expression of God's design for human flourishing under his rule, rooted inwardly in the heart and expressed outwardly in the behavior. We'll look at a couple different texts today. We'll begin with the Ten Commandment from Exodus 20, verse 17, which says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. As an example, an expression of this, we'll also look at James 4. It's on page 855 if you're using the Pew Bibles. James 4 Uh, I'm going to start in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is God's word for us today. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, we are thankful for this opportunity to look at your word this morning, and we're thankful for this summer series that uh, on the Ten Commandments. We're thankful for the way that you have provided for us guidance towards our good and our flourishing in a relationship with you and in life in this world. And so now as we look at the Tenth Commandment, we pray that you would um, guide and direct our thoughts, give me the words to speak that are yours. Uh, and help us all to apply these things to our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's one of the first questions that you ask your children. What do you want? You're crying. What do you want? (laughs) What's wrong? Which one of these do you want? Do you want chocolate or vanilla or strawberry? Do you want the stuffed bear or the dog or the lamb? Do you want the green dress or the blue one? 
Do you want to watch The Little Mermaid or Cinderella? Do you want peas or spinach? Do you want corn dogs or hamburgers? The list is endless, isn't it? And it starts from the very beginning of our lives, if you think about it. What do you want? And it comes with a desire, right, to make our kids happy, to make them stop crying, to meet their needs, to help them feel like they have some uh, ability to make choices and understand that there are things that they like and things that they don't like. And yet, it's kind of a lot of pressure, isn't it? To always have an opinion, to always be responsible, to know what you want. Which exact flavor of these 51 options sounds best? Decide now, my three-year-old. Right? We're trained to want. And we're training our children to want, to desire certain things over other things. And we're programmed with this ability to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. This is what I desire, this is what I don't desire. This is what I like and what I don't like, right? It begins from the beginning of our lives. What we desire is important. And the 10th commandment is taking us to that realm where we would consider this specific kind of desire that is called coveting. We think of it in English as the desire to take, have something that belongs to someone else. The Old Testament Hebrew word can mean to desire something or to take pleasure in something. So there are two different senses of it, and it can be good or bad depending on the situation. But usually, in the Old Testament, this word means an inordinate desire, an idolatrous desire. A hopeful way to think about it is that the commandment is describing the act of fixing our desire upon something, setting our desire upon something. One of the meanings of the noun that's related to this root is treasure. That which is important, that which you set desire upon is your treasure. In Arabic, the related word means to praise something or laud someone. And so we can see how setting our desire is connected to this idea of what do we treasure and what do we praise So God is specifically saying that we must not fix our desire on anything that is our neighbor's. His house, his wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything else. And so that's the specific idea of coveting. To set your desire on something that belongs to someone else, but there's always this sense that you don't actually get the thing that you desire. The New Testament idea similar. There are a few different words to describe this kind of desire that we understand as coveting. We're found in a number of different places in the New Testament. One of these words particularly is common. It means to want something, and it can have a good sense, as in a yearning for something good. In Luke 22, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, my disciples, on the night of the Last Supper. He eagerly desired it. But usually, as in the Old Testament, this kind of desire is the thing that needs to be repented of. It's a craving, a lusting after something. It can be a problem because of its degree, because you want too much of it, 
as in the, the case of greed, or it can be a problem because the thing you want is evil, like something that's your neighbor's. So let's take a moment to further reflect upon how desire relates to sin. From the Bible, we can kind of sketch a progression of how sin works, how something moves from an internal desire to an external action. And I've kind of sketched out this sort of diagram in the outline. It's not the kind of thing that you can just proof text from the Bible. You know, you can't just look at one verse and see how all of these things relate together. Because we're, you know, we're dealing with deep issues of human psychology and the unknowability of the human heart. But we can look at passages like James 1. We can see biblical examples of how temptation comes to fruition in Adam and Eve and David with Bathsheba and all of these other examples that we can see. And we can sort of put together, and from our own experience as well, this idea of this is kind of the way that desire moves to action. Right? It begins with this simple thought, desire. It can be triggered by seeing a pretty girl on the beach or by driving by a nice neighborhood or by looking at everyone else's back-to-school outfits or by hearing about someone's summer vacation or by stepping into the boss's corner office. You know, the, the office that actually has a window so you can see that there's an outside world, not just walls around your cubicle. Watching an ad for a new Acura on TV, whatever it is, at some point, for it to become sin, there's a line crossed in which we desire that which is not ours, and we're discontent with what we have or who we are. It's a matter of the heart. You can't sort of outline it and say, this is exactly, God can, we can't you know, say this is exactly where sin begins. But sin begins at that twinge of jealousy, the twinge of greed, the twinge of lust or pride that's expressed by an inappropriate desire. And at this point, we're beyond temptation. Temptation is that thing in front of you. When you put your desire upon it, You're beyond the point of temptation and actually to the point of breaking God's law in your heart. This is bad enough. Of course, it gets worse. The second stage is the encouragement of that desire, the nurturing it, turning it over in your mind, reflecting upon it. And eventually, sometimes, the will becomes connected to that desire. A decision is made to set our heart upon that thing that we want resulting in the formation of a plan to get it. And this can all be internal at this point. It can take years to reach this point for a person to decide that, that their house will never, that living in their current house will never make them happy or that they, their spouse is not good enough for them anymore or whatever it is. This can take a long time to reach the point of making a plan or it can happen in a few seconds as a desire turns into immediate action. The point this morning is, where is coveting here, right? If, if coveting is fixing your desire upon something, then you're like at the planning stage, right? You've already said, that's what I want. I've turned it over in my mind, and I've decided that that's what I need. Even if no external action has been taken, the Tenth Commandment has been broken. 
We've already looked at the other nine commandments, of course, this summer. And we know that they, can, they also can be broken without any outward action being taken. Idolatry can be something that's in the mind. Dishonoring our parents can happen without saying or doing anything external. Stealing and killing can both happen without any action, as Jesus interprets the commandments at least. It's like the fact that you can be convicted for a crime that you never actually carried out. I mean, if you're found with elaborate plans to break into Fort Knox and steal all the gold, that might be enough to get you a couple decades in prison, right? Even if you haven't done anything. The law recognizes that making plans to commit a crime is a crime. So, how are the Ten Commandments different how is the 10th commandment different from the others? I was thinking about this a lot this week. What, is, what makes coveting different from the others? If the others can all also include this idea of desiring something without external action actually happening. In one sense, they're, they're connected. They're overlapping. Setting one's desire is implied with the other 10 commandments, as I've mentioned. Jesus said, looking lustfully is like adultery in the heart. Stealing starts with the desire to have what is someone else's. The New Testament explicitly tells us that coveting is idolatry. And so the Tenth Commandment takes us back to the first and to the second. They're connected and overlapping. So is the Tenth Commandment really necessary? What does it add to our understanding of God's law and his design for the flourishing of his people? I think that we can see something specific about the sin of coveting, which lets us know clearly that discontentment and wrongly directed desires are a betrayal of our trust in him. Coveting shows us clearly that it's a sin to want to sin. It's a sin to desire sin. Our hearts want the wrong things, and that's a violation of God's law that doesn't ever reach external actual deeds by definition coveting is internal it's hidden and it's not obvious if you're good enough at hiding it if you're good enough at hiding what you really want no one knows that you're coveting this week i discovered the specific idea of coveting is it's in the parable of the sower and the four soils When Jesus was interpreting and explaining the parable for his disciples after he told it to the crowds, he said that one kind of soil is unfruitful because the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, that's coveting, come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Mark, 9, Mark 4, 19. Coveting chokes the fruitfulness of God's people. And it may be an indication, as this parable is designed, that a person isn't really a disciple of Jesus. If your head is turned by all the world might offer you, then is Jesus really your satisfaction? Do you really hold the hope of heaven or just hope for this life? Can you really invest in what is eternal? Is your faith the kind of faith that puts all your eggs in the Jesus basket? If you really want other things more, 
Jesus draws lines in the sand for his disciples that should make us all really uncomfortable and also that much more thankful that he's met the requirements of the law for us and that much more thankful that we're forgiven by his grace and his mercy. The 10th commandment cuts to the depth of our desires, which are not outwardly expressed. But again, on the other hand, are they really so hidden? James gives us a picture of what inward coveting and desires can do in the believer and in the believing community. Again, in James 4, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you can't get it. Some of our Bibles would break up verse 2 differently and say, you want something, but don't get it, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. In the first part of this section, James, in, in the part that I read earlier, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, James has explained that wisdom needs to be evident in the community. He says that wisdom and understanding promote goodness and humility. And he contrasts that kind of wisdom with some what they were claiming was wisdom, which wasn't really wisdom, but it was coming from envy and selfishness. So James is saying the wisdom that comes from God promotes purity and peace and righteousness. So in our section, in, he, James is trying to continue to get to the root of the conflicts within the church. And he says that the cause of the conflicts, which are expressed outwardly, is an inward problem of wrong desires within. It's debated in verse 1 whether James is describing the desires that are battling within a single person or within the community as a whole. It can be taken either way. I think it's more likely that James is referring to the former, that literally these desires are making war in the members of your body, referring to an individual in the congregation. 1 Peter 2 gives us a parallel describing this battle that happens against a person's own soul. Peter says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Right? The battle is these desires are fighting against you from within you. And this passage in James has a particular rhetorical style which says twice that unmet desires, that's coveting, right? Desires that you can't actually have. What you want but you don't get. The unmet desires are the source of fights and quarrels within the community. This is wisdom from God's word. And we tend perhaps to think in terms of conflict as the outward facts or preferences at the heart of the disagreement. But James is saying that there may be a deeper level level to the conflicts happening within the church that he's writing to. It's an expression The outward is an expression of the conflict going on within ourselves. Our hidden desires are a wellspring of discontent that can affect the whole body when we don't get what we want. It's convicting, isn't it? A conflict with another person may start, it may get ramped up, it may get blown out of proportion, it may take on a life of its own because of what is actually going on within each person. 
in terms of what they're coveting, in terms of their own unmet desires. The people involved may think that the real issue is, you know, what what do people in church argue about, right? The color of the carpet, what another person said to them, the worship style, their feelings being hurt, whatever it is. People may think that's the real issue. But James is suggesting that the cause of quarrels is the battle of desires going on within each person, which may even be kind of under the surface in our hearts. It may be suppressed from what we actually think. We think the issue is the color of the carpet. The issue is something else. Us not getting to choose. Us not being asked our opinion. Us not something else within us where we have an unmet desire. Certainly this isn't always true. It's not always that simple. But it's wisdom from God's word for us consider this morning. It's painful to live with unmet desires in a world that tells you your desires are always the decider. Isn't it? It's painful to live with unmet desires because the world is telling you that your desires are the decider. The world tells you you should get what you want. Our desires are for different things and on different scales, but this is the message. You have to follow what's best for you. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart. And this goes deep within us, doesn't it? What do we do with unmet desires? They're surely there. If you feel anything at all in this life, You know what it is to long for something that you can't have. To long to be someone that you can't be. To long to change something about yourself that you can't stand. Right? If you feel anything, you know what that feels like to have an unmet desire. And what do we do with this big pile of unmet desires? Pastor Steve talked last week about how people either put their unmet desires away, they give in to cynicism, they try to feel nothing at all, or they fight for their desire to get met. However that can happen, no matter the cost to themselves or to others, right? These are the extremes, but those are the temptations that we face when we actually deal with our unmet desires, and the quarreling and the fighting that as a result of this is what is the problem in James' church, in his audience. And he continues by saying that the reason that your desires aren't met may be because you don't ask God. And when you ask God, he doesn't answer because your motives are wrong. Your bottom line is selfish. Clearly, God wants us to pray. God wants us to ask him. For good things, God wants to, uh, you know, to answer. He promises to answer according to his will. And sometimes we see the answer that we seek, and sometimes we don't. But what do we ask for? I've never thought about it this way until this week. Is that the way to say, what do you covet? You know, it kind of sounds shocking if you say it that way, but what, what's your unmet desire? What's the thing that you're tempted to covet? 
The Tenth Commandment gives us a list of things that were the temptation for Israelites 3,000 and some years ago. And I've talked about a few things today that we might be tempted to covet already. But James is challenging us to ask ourselves, am I asking for things that I want to use selfishly? Am I asking for things that my desires be met so that I can spend it, whatever it is, on myself? Let's just look at a few examples. Money. We need money to live. God tells us to ask him for our daily bread. If God were to answer your request to give you more money, would it make you more generous? Try me. Let's see, you may say. I'd like to have that problem. The evidence across America, generally, in the last 50 years, is that the rich get richer in church and in society. The trend is that money makes money, and the natural trend is not more money means more blessing to others. We live in one of the most prosperous places and times in all of human history, and we all certainly have a different story when it comes to prosperity. Some of us aren't in the stream of prosperity. But the talking point of this trend in our country is more for us. More for us, right? We can't keep being generous to the whole world all the time, can we? Does, if you had more money, would that make you more generous? What about time? Or health. Many of our prayer requests are asking for healing, and that's a great thing. That's a good thing. We should ask. And our faith can be so encouraged when we see God restore those we love and to give better days and better health for our lives. But can you ask for this with wrong motives? What if I'm a greedy and evil person who just wants more health so that I can, and healing so that I can spend my days in every selfish pursuit with no regard for furthering God's kingdom in the world? It's kind of a stewardship issue, right? How should Christians spend their days? Many people who did many amazing things in the history of the church saw their lives shortened or their health lost for the sake of of the kingdom of God. That's countercultural in our health and safety obsessed world, isn't it? But if we're asking for for strength, what what are we going to do with that strength? Can we ask for strength to use it on our spend it on ourselves rather than further the kingdom of God? What about success? We ask God to bless our efforts. We ask God to guide us. There's nothing wrong with that. We pray for success, but is it for God's glory or for our own? Do we just give lip service to the fact that God is the one who really made everything possible for us? As painful as it is, failure can be one of the best teachers and can draw us closer to God and can do more in our spiritual lives than success ever could disappointments can help break the power that this world has on us and point us to something better. Can we ask for success in a way that's got wrong motives written all over it? What do you think James has in mind that his audience should be praying for that they don't have? 
It's the, 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 the passage doesn't tell us. I think you could make an argument that the end of chapter 3, and in the context of the whole book, right, is, it's about wisdom. It's about wisdom that comes from God. And so the people who are in James' audience seem to think that they have wisdom. But James seems to be saying, you don't have the right kind of wisdom. Your wisdom is earthly, and it leads to all kinds of selfishness and coveting and conflict. You want to be leaders? You think you're wise and understanding? But you're not showing it with good deeds and humility. And so as chapter 4 continues, this theme of humility and repentance are everywhere, confirming this idea that James is calling his audience to ask for wisdom, the kind of wisdom that brings humility, godly wisdom. And humility that is able to look at our unmet desires and not fight with someone else about them, but to take them to God instead. What does all this mean for us today? Let's think for just a few minutes how to summarize and apply the message as we wrap up all ten of the commandments. We've learned that it's a sin to want to sin. The coveting is fixing our desire on something that isn't ours. And that betrays a heart of discontentment with what God has given us. We can see how coveting fits into a progression of sin on the spectrum from thought to action, from bad to worse. And this commandment teaches us that coveting can make our lives unfruitful as the weeds choke out the word of God within us. What can we learn? What do I want you to know? It struck me this week that there's often an internal battle within us that lies behind an external conflict between people or parties. This is true within the church. This is true in the world. And in one way, this isn't rocket science, right? Of course, our desires that are within us color and shape our attitudes and actions and our conflicts. But I think I grasped this in a new way this week through this passage. It's profound. The cause of quarrels is coveting. It's trying to meet our unmet desires. And this should make us question our motives and ask God afresh for wisdom when we find ourselves in difficult situations, when we find ourselves in a situation of conflict. That's what I want you to know. What should we believe? Desire is powerful to shape our spiritual lives. Again, this is a no-brainer, but there's great power and perhaps great danger in what you desire and what you think about and what you daydream about and what you fantasize about and what you plot to make happen. This commandment tells us that danger of the horse getting out of the barn in our minds long before anything happens. Right? That's what's particular to coveting. Is nothing, the desire is not met, and it's still sin. So what do we do? Repent? Ask God to change that which you desire? As believers in Christ... We've been given new hearts, and the Spirit of God lives within us. At the deepest core of us, I really believe this. I believe the Bible teaches this. At the deepest core of every believer, we want to live according to God's law. 
but we war against the flesh. So, so your heart isn't a black, fleshly heart anymore. If you're a believer, God put a new heart and a new spirit within you, but you still, your heart is still surrounded by your flesh, right? And our hearts are deceitful, and there's an enemy who wants our destruction working against us, and we live in a world that tells you that your feelings are the ultimate decider. And so instead of going there with all of those things that we want, Paul tells the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Dwell on those things. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to find those things in the TV news or in your Facebook feed. It's hard to find those things. Similarly, Jesus told us, seek first his kingdom. Desire it above even your material needs. In that passage, people are saying, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? And Jesus says, don't think about those things, as basic as those things are. Instead, seek first his kingdom, placing our trust in his promise that all of these things will be given to you as well. As we come to the Lord's table, we find that our coveting, our wrong desires, our unmet longings, have objectively been taken away. They've been nailed to the cross. They've been placed upon the sun. He bore the weight of it all. And he gives us grace in the struggle as our hearts and our heads are still turned so often. The Ten Commandments as a whole are an expression of that grace. You are forgiven in Christ. You are in the family of God. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, this is the path of life. And this is the path of flourishing. And your deepest desire is here. Your real and eternal longings have been met. That's the message of the table It's the message of the gospel, that grace is here. And your real and eternal longings have been met and will be met forever. It's good news for us, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to want you more than anything else. Father, change within us our desires that war against our soul, that tell us, that only whatever it is, other thing will satisfy. Father, we need your help in this. We are, uh, we're small, and we're frail, and we are so easily swayed. But we ask that you would be the one who preserves your people, uh, who helps us fight against the, the weeds and desires that want to choke the fruitfulness out of our lives. Help us to live in such a way where What we have been given is shared generously. Help us to be satisfied. 
We need your help in these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.